0: Welcome to the CCA on the Air podcast. This is Kate Derrick, communications director at Complete College America, back again for one more week of future-ready content from CCA's 2023 annual convening in Las Vegas. We're bringing you a session today that covered a buzzworthy and important topic for the college completion landscape, politics and public policy. This session features five members of CCA's Policy Advisory Council as they discuss the intersection of policy, equity, and college completion. You'll hear from Will Pilar, Senior Vice President at the Education Trust, Janae Chandler, Director of College Completion Policy at the Institute for College Access and Success, Jesse Ryan, Executive Vice President at the Campaign for College Opportunity, Lee Nimix, Senior Vice President and Chief of Staff at the Kentucky Council on Post Secondary Education, and Colin Chelman, University Dean for Institutional and Policy Research at the City University of New York. Moderating the panel today is Grace McCoupa, CCA's Policy Director, we will get us started and jump right into the questions for the panelists. Over to Grace.
1: And I'll sit down just so we can make this friendly. And my first question these are questions that were um, submitted to us. It will be Dr. Will, and we'll go. As you came to sit, the Supreme Court has significantly shaped equity-related higher education policies such as affirmative action in admission. What steps can be taken on a state level to help promote diversity and inclusion in college completion?
2: I talked a little bit about this earlier if you were in one of our um the session on affirmative action specifically, but I do think there are state level frameworks that we need to be thinking about to create opportunities for universal access. Um, A lot of folks, we shifted the conversation from an access to a completion conversation several years ago, but I would argue that we haven't really figured out access. Uh, In fact, in states where we saw bans on affirmative action, um, enrollment of black students never recovered. Uh, I looked at some data recently from California Uh, The CSUs and the UC uh, uh, schools are all less, they have fewer black students today than they did 20 years ago. So we haven't figured out access. And so we do need to be thinking about um, state level frameworks in the absence of broader federal level. Um, We just got the update. We're not gonna see much moving. The last time we had a reauthorization of HEA, I was actually a graduate student intern. Um, And so it's been a while. Um, So I do think that at a statewide, perspective, we need to be thinking about one pathway, what path, what design pathways do we actually have going into post secondary education? Um, you know, when we think about the K 12 perspective, I know lots of folks said we're focusing on college, everyone's going to college. When we look at the national data, only 48% of 40, 52% of students who graduated high school last year went on a post secondary. That means 48% didn't. Um, when 70% of the jobs are being created, going to require some level of post secondary education, we need to be designing better pathways um, into post-secondary education. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean bachelor's degree. I mean, we see a huge rise in short-term certificates. Um, you know, with the update on Pell for workforce, maybe that's an opportunity for us to rethink what we're doing in terms of pathways into post-secondary. Um, second, I think that, like for me, direct admissions is a very promising way of, uh, of creating that universal framework into post-secondary education. Um, states like um, Idaho, um, the Dakotas, SUNY actually just adopted or, cre- or is, are creating um, a direct admission program. And what direct admission effectively is, is it's uh, admissions directly to the institutions. So students opt out. Um, and I like the way Idaho does it. There's no application. It's, uh, there's no fee assigned uh, associated with it. They leverage a statewide longitudinal data system to automatically admit students um, into at least six colleges, right? And so students find out early on that they're admitted to six colleges, two and four-year institutions, and that students can opt out. I think it's easier to have an opt-out than to have an opt-in system. And when we think about, for example, retirement programs uh, at if uh, for employers, there is actually some evidence to show that that's more equity-focused to have an opt-out instead of an opt-in program. Um, as fast as a high school, if you're gonna do that though, you probably should have fast as a high school graduation requirement. We know. Lots of dollars, Pell dollars get left on the table. Um, I do think that you have to design that with supports. We should not create a mandate for there to be a FAFSA uh, for all high school graduates to complete FAFSA, and then say, okay, you college or your high school counselors are already overworked. Like, go get it done. Um, Louisiana, in my opinion, has done it very effectively, leveraging intermediaries to provide additional supports to um, to states around FAFSA completion. And then, you know, the, I would say that the biggest um, barrier that students face is um, is affordability. And so we need to be thinking about statewide frameworks to make college tuition free. I would love to see a federal state partnership when we were really close um, during the pandemic to getting a federal state partnership that would make two-year colleges tuition free. We didn't get there because of one Senator Manchin from West Virginia, um, but, States are doing this. We see states tackling last-dollar programs. And while they're not my favorite, um, I I don't think that they address uh, affordability for the neediest students. I think that the messaging um, is good. And I do think that if you create a framework where you have tuition-free college, where you have all students completing FAFSA, where you have students being directly admitted, I do think we can address some of the declines in enrollment we've seen and some of the gaps in equity in terms of college access that we're seeing nationally. That's all you have to do. Yeah,
1: that's all you have to do. We're done. so much. So uh, we will have follow-up questions, especially you talked about affordability, you talked about access, you talked about better pathways, you mentioned Idaho. So we'll follow up later on. Dr. Jenae, are you ready? Fabulous. I have a question, a special one for you. There has been a growing focus on economic disparities in higher education. With concerns about access affordability, so that follows up in his question, what policy recommendation do you have for improving access to higher education for low-income students?
3: Yeah, so at TICUS, um we are in, we work in federal advocacy as it relates to affordability, um, as well as accountability. Um, We are now building out our college completion portfolio, which really is focused on the holistic or comprehensive needs of students. And so as we're mapping out our policy agenda, um, I'm being very intentional on looking at what the historic data tells us, right? So I don't know about y'all, but my grandmother and our elders used to say, you have to know where you come from to know where you're going. And I think before we can become really future ready or really address barriers related to access and affordability and completion and all the things, we really need to take um, some intentional time to look at data. So nationally right now, um, we have touted the 62% completion rate for the six-year cohort rate, right? Like, But in reality, when you disaggregate that data and you look at it from a racial equity lens, Um, those figures, that figure is not true for Black students. Um, We are still missing the mark on our Black student um, access, but also the completion. So for Black students amongst that cohort, that data set, um, I wrote it down because I don't want to mess it up, right? 31% complete who started at community colleges. Uh, 50% completed who started at four-year institutions. And then also, we can't forget about the 40 million people with some college no degree and when you break that down black students um we they've made we've made really good progress but like our gains are still not a uh, par with our white asian and even latino uh counterparts so um one of the things that we are heavily advocating for in our work is uh, the post secondary student success grant program which you heard mentioned um in this opening presentation, um, we are starting to see strong support for that grant program, which is really sort of designed and modeled based on evidence-based programs, such as Inside Track, Community ASAP, um, One Million Degrees. And, and what the federal government is essentially positioning us to do is to be able to provide funding to meet students' needs from a holistic perspective. So these programs include um, advising, coaching, support, um, financial incentives and supports like scholarships, as well as support around like child care, transportation. Um, and what's also unique about these programs are they're not like tacked on to someone's job. They have designated staff who are responsible advisors and case managers for those students that's the, that are in those programs. However, as I mentioned, we're missing the mark with Black students. We're missing we're missing the mark when we tie in additional margins and intersections of income, reality. And so what we're prioritizing to kind of close us off on this is um, what are the policy and funding conditions necessary to implement these types of evidence-based programs in the communities and the institutions in which these students attend? So these students are, you'll find them at regional comprehensives, you'll see them at community colleges, In our minority-serving institutions, um, actually, this group of institutions actually serve 86% of undergraduate students. However, they remain underfunded and under-resourced. So um, our policy focus is making sure that um, these institutions are well-equipped to be able to meet the needs of the students that they serve.
1: Thank you, Dr. Shan. We we appreciate that you mentioned affordability and we're missing the mark. And I just wanna let the audience know that you are a recipient growing up of a uh, Pell Grant. So you have walked into those shoes. So thank you for for your experiences. Jesse, I'm coming to you. Um I know you did mention you're from California, you did mention I asked her and I was interviewing these people earlier. You are proud to be raised by a single mom who was struggling and you made it Um, to this point. So I have a quick question since you're from California. Yeah, California has been tackling an ambitious set of higher education reforms. Can you share a few key policies and initiatives that your organization, specifically your organization, that you have been implementing?
4: Yes. Thank you, Grace. So, you know, the Campaign for College Opportunity has been at the forefront of dismantling inequitable systems in California for nearly two decades with a laser focus on improving outcomes for students of color and low-income first-generation students. We've focused almost entirely um, on our public colleges and universities with a huge intentionality around community college reform because if you care about racial equity and you care about student success, you have to invest your time and energy in systems change at community colleges, which are the gateway to opportunity for the majority of students across the country. Um, We have, over nearly two decades, done a great deal of work on both transfer reform and developmental education reform, and I'm gonna come back to that. But at this current moment in time, I would say we are meeting a racial equity imperative as a result of the egregious decision by SCOTUS to ban race-conscious admissions, and because we know that that will have a ripple effect that will continue to be felt for generations to come. The Campaign for College Opportunity decided that it was critical that we not just tackle the state policy reforms that have been the bread and butter of our work, but we came forward and we said, we're going to be part of coordinating a national strategic response to the SCOTUS decision, and that is going to come with research that is the best in the field based on what we know are evidence-based practices that actually lead to more racially just outcomes and tools for our Ed equity allies, for our presidential leaders, for our uh, staff at the community college level so that they have a response that we feel is meeting the moment and addressing the needs of students and families across the country. Just today, we ra- we released a inclusive hiring brief with two incredible authors. Um, you might know Dr. Frank Harris and Dr. Luke Wood, so please go to our website and download that brief. We've also recently done two papers on what I believe are the most important reforms we can be tackling, both at a state and a national level in response to the SCOTUS decision, and that is really looking at transfer and looking at ensuring that students have access to college-level math and language through the gates of community colleges. In California, we saw years ago, with fewer than 3% of community college students reaching their transfer dreams within two years of entering a community college, that there was a need for radical change. I often say I would be a statistic having attended three community colleges simultaneously to get the classes I needed to transfer were it not for one person that helped me find my path well we shouldn't rely upon luck or the goodness of one person we should have systems that work for students and so we have put in place an associate degree for transfer a common lower division general education pathway we are in the process of implementing common course numbering across the state of california and default placement for community college students on the associate degree for transfer pathway, of which we are nearing half a million students who have earned that degree, the majority of whom are Latinx. And then I'll just say it in, in wrapping this up: you know, probably our most transformational policy and the policy that I cannot evangelize enough. Is this idea of reimagining remediation so that we are not putting students into remedial ed sequences that kill college dreams, but we are swinging the doors of opportunity open by ensuring that students through the gates of community college go into a transfer level math or English class? With the appropriate supports and i am very proud to say that all 116 california community colleges are implementing this and it has been the most significant civil rights reform with huge gains for our black and latinx students across the state
1: thanks Ms. Ryan. <laughs> very radical transformation i'll move in into um a different segue. our globe we have been uh, facing a lot of things in the middle east a lot of um, displacement in the past few years. We have Sudan, we have Congo, Afghanistan. Um, I know that Kentucky has a pilot program that started in 2022, which has assisting, it has the ability to assist displaced people, whether it's um, natural disasters, war, or anything from other countries. These are people coming to our country. So I would like for you to share with the audience How that program is going what are the successes the challenges that kentucky is facing so i'm glad you are here
5: thank you well thank you grace and i'll take a little commercial break to thank cca uh, for the work that they're doing Um, they have really been a terrific partner with kentucky and have supported us in a number of ways i have been really blessed to be a part of this organization over the past decade and have seen it evolve and so i just wanted to sort of take a minute to talk about Uh, how much you mean to the states and certainly um, states like Kentucky. So back to the question. Um, Thanks for the platform to talk about this program because it's exciting. Um, We were appropriated $10 million in Kentucky about uh, 18 months ago. And $10 million in states like California doesn't seem like very much, but in a state like Kentucky, it is a great deal of money to start a brand new scholarship program for a population of students that we have never really supported directly at the state level before. And quite honestly, I don't know how much was going on at the individual campuses to support displaced or refugee populations. But, you know, I think that our legislators were seeing all of the destruction in the war in Ukraine and Afghanistan and Sudan and Congo. And I think that they wanted to make a very. Um, <laughs> a strong statement about Kentucky being not only a welcoming place for refugees and displaced people but also that we were gonna help give them a step up. So not just to resettle uh, displaced people but provide them with a pathway uh, towards uh, a job, a career uh, and a a family sustaining wage. So hopefully they can uh, stay in Kentucky and contribute to, um, to our workforce and our economy So I think that, you know, in looking at this program, a lot of people are looking at it as a workforce development program. So very quickly, a little bit about the program. Um, We decided pretty early on that we needed help. Uh, You know, I don't know if any of you guys have worked with immigration issues and definitions, but it's very complicated. Uh, We started working with a couple of national organizations, including the National Association of System Heads, and they helped us really... um, really uh, stand up this program very quickly. So we got the money in March. We actually started uh, uh, implementing it in July. So um, we decided early on that it was going to be for undergraduates only. Um, And we also felt like it needed to be, um, it should cover the total cost of attendance. And that's pretty rare in our student aid programs in the state, but we know how many folks who are displaced came to the country or came to our state without anything, clothes on their back you know, for them to be asked to pay, you know, anything above tuition, I think would have been very difficult. So, we made that decision early on, and I think that was a great help. Um, The other thing we realized, though, is that, and I referenced this before, the campuses and, you know, organizations like CPE were not well-versed in how to really provide supportive services. You know, money wasn't, money is helpful, but it's not everything. So, um, we were able to work with NASH and our other uh, national partners to create a statewide community of practice. Uh, that group met monthly um, and began to help um, help folks like student aid directors and um, student affairs people and, and uh, folks in our international studies uh, departments understand kind of the needs that these students would have coming in, how to create wraparound services that would be specific uh, to these populations. And so um, I, I will tell you, you know, the the jury is, is, is in to a certain extent, although we are still in the middle of this pilot. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to this group is because we're obviously going to be advocating for continuation of it. Um, and we hope that other states pick up the mantle because we think that, you know, this issue of displaced populations is not going to go away. It is going to continue to grow. And I think that the U.S. is going to need to be seen as a as a place uh, of refuge for these uh, for these students. Uh, we served students from 23 countries. Uh, we served about 400 students this past year, and I'm sure that number will increase next year. Um, and so, thus far, in our conversations and the evaluation that we've done for the first year, it's simply been life changing. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Um, you know, it's not only folks coming in without any education. But it's folks coming out, perhaps they were a social worker in the Sudan, but they don't have that same certification here, so they needed to skill back up, and so this provides them a pathway. So I could go on, and I'm happy to talk to to anybody more about it later, but um, I'll stop there. Thank you.
1: <laughs> thank, thank you for sharing that. Um it, is, um. it is good for America to be an example and a place for that. So we'll, we'll talk. Can
2: I say something? Yes. I think we should support all uh, immigrant students, including mm-hmm. undocumented. And I'd like to see states provide the same type of supports to undocumented students who don't get access to any federal resources, and in certain states don't even get access to state resources. So I would love to see us support all immigrant students, including mm-hmm. those that are
1: undocumented, um, at the state level. Fabulous, including a national student who are documented. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'll, I'll move to um, Dr. Colin, because we, we have been talking about AI right, throughout different um, sessions. Uh, for CUNY, for as a lead person, uh, we have these pedagogies that you're using to, um, to assess students, maybe registration and student support services. How is the City University of New York utilizing these pedagogies or any resources uh, with AI? What's a teacher?
6: Well, I'm glad you asked. asked. <laughs> um, so, it wouldn't be a at a conference these days without talking about AI. And I imagine the audience falls into two group groups. there's one group that group was excited about it, and now you're less excited about the promise of AI until AI fulfills that promise, or you're in the group that is still excited about it. So, I am here to bring you all together under the banner of boredom. Um, I want to talk about the foundational work we need to do in data collection. Um, Yes, I know a lot of you are interested in data analysis, data reporting, metrics, but this is data collection, the most boring thing of all. But this is where we're focusing at CUNY. Uh, So uh, two weeks ago, CUNY held its annual IT conference, and the theme this year was AI. Surprise. Um, Faculty and staff submitted a hundred proposals showing the vast array of uses of AI, AI tools and algorithms for administrative productivity, um, for student support services, for advising. It ran the gamut. Um, The one common thread is its reliance on data. So AI algorithms, AI tools are trained on enormous data sets. And to the extent that those data sets don't represent, aren't representative, AI is going to reproduce those biases. Um, and so we've seen this for years in biomedical research, just as an aside. There is a long history of biomedical research leaving out large portions of the population. So let's learn those lessons of history and get it right with uh, the AI revolution from the beginning. Um, So, CUNY, like a lot of institutions, uses PeopleSoft as its student information system, and we have a record for every student who was enrolled and is currently enrolled. CUNY, like a lot of other institutions, has dozens and dozens of special programs, like mentorship programs, tutoring. and. We don't have a central repository for all of those data, the participation outcomes data for internship programs, for example. Um, The responsibility for that data collection largely lies with the individual programs. Uh, Depending on the program, they'll keep rosters on paper, in Excel, in a Word document, on someone's C drive. The whole point is that there's no central repository for information on participation and outcomes in these special programs. Um, And for a lot of people, this is a large part of their academic journey. And to the extent that um, underserved students are actually the targets of a lot of these populations, um, excuse me, programs, uh, we have an incomplete picture of the educational journey for a lot of our students. So What CUNY is doing, um, and sorry, in my bio, you'll just see a long title. Essentially, I run the Data and Research Office for CUNY's central office. So what we're doing is piloting a process and a new central program database, uh, working in partnership with our Office of Careers and uh, Industry Partnerships to systematically gather participation dosage, information, uh, and outcomes for each of those special programs run by our career office. Um, We are putting all of that information into a central program database, um, and we are then going to train future AI tools, algorithms, for whatever reason, on a much more complete set of data. Uh, And in this way, we're providing a much more solid foundation for the AI revolution at CUNY we would love that to be reproduced nationwide.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I'll move to... <laughs> 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 I'll move to Dr. Jenae, you did talk about racial um, equity, right? Uh, and you touched a little bit about the black student. Um, how does TCERS envision that, you said historical data on racial equity? How would that look like for TCERS in policy making? what idea or maybe just one you would like to amplify in your work with policy right now i think
3: um amplifying the message and raising awareness amongst our uh congressional staffs um with folks at the u.s department of education um and partnering with uh other organizations um in our coalitions and uh, various spaces that we collaborate with so like ed trust um who's a heavily racially equity-centered uh, organization. We partner with um, a number of similar organizations. Um, so working together as a coalition to really uh, raise the message, but also to be able to advance some of our um, policy priorities. And for, for right now, it's making sure that there are targeted wraparound supports and um, under-resourced and underfunded institutions because we know what works, we have evidence of it, Mm -hmm. but we need to make sure there's equitable uh, resources and funding available um, at those institutions. And to address the stop, some college, no degree student population, you know, we really need to begin to explore um, various policies. Like we Will mention direct admissions, right? Why don't we have something reflective to attract or re-engage or re-enroll those adults who have went to college and then they're back home, maybe, right? Um, What is the outreach like for them? And so those are some of the priorities that we're going to be doing.
2: Thank you. Can can I share, we should also be thinking about investing more heavily in Title III and Title V institutions, right? Mm -hmm. The institutions that are enrolling the most students of color, like HBCUs and HSIs and Adapisi's and tribal-serving colleges. Um, These institutions are severely under-resourced. The U.S. Department of, or actually the White House actually sent a letter recently um to uh to i think it was 13 states around the underfunding that has happened at uh, at the at hbcus in their state and so i do think number one we we underfund the resources that enroll the most students of color and the most low-income students and that is a policy choice right that is a policy choice and so i think if we're going to underfund them at the state level then at the federal level we should be in, investing additional dollars to ensure that those wraparound services, and mental health services, the, the, the type of supports that we know are successful because we have the evidence to prove it, like, so the institutions could actually do that. And I think that what we see happening, especially at the federal level, is those institutions that enroll the fewest students are getting the most federal dollars. And so I do think we need to invest more heavily in those institutions.
1: Fabulous, so wonderful. So I'll bring the conversation to the audience, but I just want to check the temperature. Policy wise, one word to describe how you feel in your organization. Just one word, not sentence. How you feel in your organization? Are you, are you feeling empowered? Are you feeling how are you feeling? So I'll ta- I'll start with um Dr. with you. Dr. Collin. I'll start one word to describe temperature. In terms of policy.
6: I didn't expect to hear Dr. Collin.
1: Oh,
6: <laughs> oh good heavens. I have no idea the answer. That.
1: How do you feel? One word. Describing a situation of policy. Okay, I'll go to Dr. Lee. Hopeful. Hopeful or helpful? Hopeful. Hopeful, you wonderful.
5: Know, you know, I think that um, people, people are beginning to really get it. Okay. And I think we are beginning, uh, certainly uh, in Kentucky, and I think uh, among our sister states, are connecting policy with goals in a way that we never have before. Um, and I think that, uh, I think things look very helpful. We've got, a, in Kentucky, an upcoming legislative session I might feel differently in about six months, but yeah, okay. um, feel pretty good.
1: Wonderful. hopeful. what's the next
5: word?
4: I'm going to say urgent. Urgent. We don't have time to stop. We are accelerating full force
1: ahead. Urgent. Energize. Energize. Dr. Will. Defensive. Uh, <laughs> I'll come back to CUNY before Dr. I take it to the <laughs> audience. Do- <laughs> yes, you're on? Uh, One word?
6: Oh. I'm going to say hopeful because our uh, partner institution in the state, SUNY, has joined as an alliance member. So I think there's a lot of possibility there. Thank Sorry you to steal well. your word. but
1: No, it's not stealing. We're sharing. We're here. Um, so we have Anna in the audience. And Anna we have right from Tickers, right, in Charles. Um, so Anna will have the mic. Please, if you have any questions for our panelists, you've got to have some questions. These are policy panels. Yes. No. Oh, she's, she's passing the mic around. Well, yes. Yeah. all right. Anyone has a question? Uh-uh, uh-uh. All right, fabulous. You can direct a question to a person or the entire panel and one of them can pick it up.
7: Yeah, uh, this is a very specific question, uh, maybe for Janae or even Vincent. So you mentioned that CCA is advocating for the, an increase in funding for the post-secondary student success grants. Um, I was working with several institutions on submitting for that grant this past summer, um, and it was to replicate the ASAP model, which is probably one of the strongest evidence-based models that we know in terms of student success. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, these institutions decided not to apply because of the requirement to conduct an RCT as part of the proposal. Um, And so, I don't know if you've been focusing on that, but they were not interested in in doing another RCT for a model that's already proven to be effective, right? It seemed like a waste of time and energy and resources, and particularly, they were not interested in a control group that was going to deny those services to other students. So I don't know if you've talked about that, but that's a huge one if you're going to
3: support I'm looking at my colleagues because I come from community colleges. I come from public institutions, and uh, Lord, I don't hope I don't get fired, but- I have, um, (laughs) I have strong feelings and thoughts about it. We're in a climate where enrollment is low, college completion is low. And if we know something works, we need to make sure that we are not withholding interventions from students that can get them to the finish line. That's just Janae, not Tika's, okay? (laughs) But I have been loud and clear about that since I've got there, have gotten, but now that is emerging. However, this morning at 1130, I had a conversation around about the the institutions that were selected and then also how the focus on evidence-based, I believe we've overshadowed and complicated the instruction and the expectation because if you are replicating or implementing a program that does have a RCT, it is our understanding as those who are in the coalition and advocating for that program, that that is not a requirement. And so I literally just had a conversation this morning on like, do I publicly respond and say something? Is this a direct message to to, to Ed to provide some clear technical assistance and guidance? But that's my number one concern because again, the institutions where students go and are not finishing are not on that list. So
2: we
3: we literally just talked about this at dinner last night it's on our radar and we're planning on moving forward to try to make sure we remove any additional barriers that might have come into play
2: yeah I it's a huge problem. I think that we're asking folks to replicate something and we already have evidence that it works. And to me, that makes no sense at all. And We're disadvantaging the institutions that can use these resources to actually help students get over the finish line. To me, it's a travesty when an institution, and I don't know if anyone here from UC Berkeley, UC Berkeley doesn't need another $8 million from the federal government to support its students, right? There are community colleges and other institutions that in my opinion are more more deserving of these dollars to get students to completion when UC Berkeley admits the best and brightest already in the state. Like that is a waste of federal dollars in my opinion. And we should be we should be targeting those resources to lower lower resource institutions. Sorry for taking it, no it's
3: it's that's what we do. But, but you but you know what would be helpful is if, you know, you know us now, but if you could send us an email, send us, right? And, and it's really good for us to say, like, here's an example. Like, <laughs> go, for us to just say it, it's like, oh, you're pushing your agenda. But for us to really bring in those institutional voices is key and critical. And one of the things that I do at TICAS is I bring the institution. So please, let's connect before we go.
1: Good question. We have in the back. So our
8: CUNY representative talked about artificial intelligence yeah. and the challenges with uh, making sure that students of color or students who have been um, disadvantaged are part of this large data set to train artificial intelligence. You talked about the Career Center as the pilot project for gathering that data. And my understanding is that on most, on many campuses, students of color are low income students aren't as active in even campus programs that are not specifically drawing them in. And so I'm wondering what strategies you all are putting in place to even make sure that on your campus you're getting the robust representation of students of color, low income students, because sometimes programs just on their face are not pulling in all of the students from the different demographics. The intentionality is the question that I have about how we build AI systems that are going to draw information for students of color and low-income students.
6: Absolutely. So uh, at CUNY, these programs are actually built to be targeted to low-income students at pretty much all all of our campuses. Um, the idea behind this, well, so that's that's part number one. Uh, part number two, the design of this central program database is also intended to identify students who aren't participating in any special programs at all. So we can learn something from that, uh, but we can also use that information in order to target future resources to students who are not taking advantage, or at least trying to understand why they're not taking advantage. Um, In all of those cases, we have a much more complete picture of the academic trajectory for the broad range of students.
1: Thank you, Dr. (laughs) Connor. We have a room for one more question. Going once. Dr. Barbara, did you have a question? Nah. okay, I'm I'm just calling you out. All right. I guess uh to wrap up, we have three minutes. Maybe you can tell us what should we look forward? What are your organization organization initiative? What are you looking for? So just give me one sentence, because I got three minutes. Here, so what are you working on currently that we can look forward to? I'll start with Kentucky since um
5: one thing. Well we are We are focused in a number of different areas. I think um, one of the things that we're gonna be focused on most deliberately over the next year is really connecting our K-12 system more effectively to our post-secondary system. And that has to do in large part with communication, helping the communicators, the advisors in the K-12 system understand the process of transitioning effectively to a post-secondary institution. And we have found in our research and analysis, that's where one of the breakdown, big breakdowns is. And so we've set up an academy and we've engaged uh, high school counselors and high school leaders across the state, middle school leaders uh, to really help them really shore up this big gap that we have between K-12 and higher ed.
1: K-12, what's about California? So we'll
4: use the word defense and I will say, you know, we're working on policy implementation because we are not celebrating these incredible transformational passages of legislation and budget investments if we're not protecting their implementation with fidelity and ensuring that we have the courage to say when policies don't work and make the necessary adjustments so that they are meeting the needs of minoritized students
1: across the state of California and beyond. Fabulous. I'll go back to CUNY. What's New York? What are we looking forward to?
6: Well, we just completed a strategic plan. Um, We are using that strategic plan to focus our resources on a number of evidence-based programs, programs that work. And I will say, just sort of removing the question from the ASAP question from before, we are finding increasing evidence that RCTs and quasi-experimental methods based on observational data are qualitatively yielding very similar results with much fewer resources involved. So a lot of our work, our evidence in the future is going to be based on essentially cheaper observational data and less on RCTs. RCTs are still the gold standard, but we look forward to focusing on evidence-based practices doing more evaluation research using quasi-experimental
2: methods.
1: Thank you for that. I'll go to the education trust.
2: Oh. I'm Yeah, Um, so this is gonna be, it's kind of wonky and really boring, but um, there's a lot that right now negotiated rulemaking has been happening around student debt cancellation. And we also have accreditation coming up and several other issues that are gonna be, um, that are gonna go to the regulatory table. Um, and if you pay attention to those things, those things will come back and bite you in the end. And so I would urge you, to, we're paying attention to negotiated rulemaking at the federal level and suggest that it's, we should all be maybe paying attention.
1: Dr. Janet, give us what, us what, what are we looking forward to? Well, I'll, we talk about the, I'll talk about completion, but completion, we are, okay.
3: yeah, our completion team, but we are, um, I'm really excited about looking at black student attainment and completion in rule in Southern states. Um, at Trust years ago did a report on like the state attainment and um, our Southern states have some of the lowest black attainment rates. And so I'm really excited about diving into that work, but I also want to give a charge to everyone in the room um, to this to the point of this exchange that we had. Um, our organizations exist and in, in, in work in advocacy spaces and we have the, the ear to people who, Um, are at the table making certain decisions, please leverage us in CCA to be able to inform our advocacy efforts and make sure um, your voices and experiences are lifted.
1: Good. Ladies and gentlemen, thinkers and educators, it has been a pleasure to be your moderator. So give our panelists a good round of applause.
0: Thank you, Dr. Makupa for moderating this panel and thank you to our CCA Policy Advisory Council members. You can find more future ready content at completecollege.org and tune into our next episode of CCA on the air in two weeks, when you'll hear more from our CCA strategy team and how they are advancing college completion throughout the CCA Alliance. We will talk to you then.